Father, we thank you, Lord, that in your son Jesus, the mystery was revealed. God, that we today get to stand on the other side of the things that the prophets longed to see. God, we know that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that there was no trace of sin within him. So that he, being fully God, could live the perfect life we couldn't live. He, being fully man, took our place in death to die the death that we deserve. We thank you for the mercy that you have poured out on us through him. So, Father, I ask that as we open up your word together this morning, that we would once again let that message fall fresh on our hearts and minds. Father, that you would use your word to shape us and mold us, to make us more like Jesus. Lord, will you in these moments transform us from one more degree of glory to the next? Make us more like Jesus. Father, use your word. Speak to our hearts together this morning edify your church, glorify your name, sanctify us in truth, because your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and find a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me once again, your Bibles, Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking together at verses 57 through 66 today. Um, If you're our guest today, our church family has been in Luke 1 for a few weeks now. We're in an Advent message series called Glory in the Highest, where once again we are returning uh, to this incredible uh, eternity-altering event, which was the coming of God into the space, time and space of human history, the Word becoming flesh, and the person and work of Jesus Christ. So uh, we started Luke chapter 1 just a couple weeks ago. Lord willing, be here for a couple more weeks as we get into uh, Christmas weekend, and then also the week after, uh, wrapping up our year in Luke chapter 1 and 2. Um, Our family typically travels the week after Christmas. We don't have any family locally here, so we usually go to North Carolina, where uh, Emily and I are both from, and uh, this year's a little bit different for us. We're traveling the week before Christmas. One of my uh, best friends, childhood friend, is getting married next weekend, and so we get to go be a part of that, and then uh, we'll spend a few days with my family, a couple days with her family before coming back to be with you on Christmas Eve, and um, the the, uh, earlier traveling this year has us under the gun a little bit more than even usual. We feel a little bit more against the clock when it comes to buying gifts, having things ready. And so uh, my wife, who is 100% a planner, if you guys, you guys that know her, um, this past week she wanted to go ahead and get a jump on getting some presents wrapped because she did not uh, want to face that beast alone whenever we got back on Christmas Eve. And so uh, she stayed up one evening and, and was getting a lot of the things that we'd ordered for the boys or purchased, getting those wrapped up and getting them under the tree. And so quite predictably... Uh, the next morning, our boys, 6.30 in the morning, they get up getting ready for school, and they get to uh, the landing there in our stairs, and they see presents under the tree. And of course, all three of them scream, top of their lungs, presents, and they go running down the stairs, and then they're gathered around the tree, and they're looking at the boxes. That one's got my name. That one's got your name. And so Lincoln, our youngest, who's four, bless his heart, uh, he peels back for a second, looks at me, he goes, wait, Christmas is today? I'm like, Oh, buddy, no, 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 no. Like, that's, that's not what's going on here. And so we explain, we're like, well, remember, buddy, we've got to travel early this year. Mom's gone ahead and started wrapping some presents, but it's still going to be a few weeks before we can open those up. And then it just felt terrible, man. He gets that ab- just pouty look on his face, the lips quivering a little bit, and then getting some tears in his eyes, and he goes, it's never going to come. And, and remember that as a kid, like the sheer agony of waiting for all that. We're like, oh man, what did we just do to this guy? So we're, you know, we're trying to comfort him and his brothers have been down this road, you know, several times. Now they're like, no, like you'll get to open it here in just a couple of weeks. And so we assured him, 
like, buddy, hey, Christmas Day is coming in just a couple of weeks. We're going to go be with family, but then we'll come home, and the time is going to come that you get to open this gift. So what alleviated the experience of his suffering in that moment was the hope of relief in the form of a gift that was to come. And as we've looked at, at this narrative over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is a people who have been longing, who people have been waiting. For centuries, there had been prophetic silence among God's people, and then that silence is shattered with the arrival of Gabriel telling Zechariah and Elizabeth that they were going to have a child, and he was going to prepare the way for the, the Son of God, for Jesus, who was going to come and save uh, people from their sins. And, and so all this has build, been building up, and, and there's, there's this sense of God's mercy being poured out on his people and salvation finally coming to his people. And, and this is what it feels like for us a lot of times as followers of Jesus. What, what alleviates the experience of our suffering in the presence is the promise of relief to come in the future. We know that this is such good news, and this is what we remember during the Advent season, that as sure as Jesus Christ has come once, church, he's going to come again, Amen. Like, that's what alleviates that suffering. That's what helps us endure in those moments of suffering is knowing that this Jesus, who we sing about and who we read about in this word and who we pray to, this Jesus, one day we're going to see him face to face. And that sustains us in these moments of darkness. We can trust, we've seen the last couple of weeks, that God's promises are going to come to pass. And when his promises do come to pass, it puts his glory and his power on perfect display. Uh, Nate and I must have been drinking the, the same coffee this morning because I got some words here from our boy Tozer as well. And this is A.W. Tozer, uh, his work, God's Power for Your Life. I just want to share this with us this morning. He writes, In looking at the promises of God from Genesis to Revelation, we see that there is a divine purpose behind each of them. God's promises are not God being capricious or promising arbitrary things to make his people feel good about themselves and happy. The promises of God are dynamic and deliberate. And when we accept them, our Christian life begins to ascend to levels of spiritual power we never knew before. We've seen the last week, a couple of weeks, that our God is going to make good on his promises. Oftentimes he fulfills them in very unexpected ways, but our God is going to make good on his promises. So if you're following along in your notes this morning, we're going to see in Luke 1 that the Lord moves in power through the fulfillment of his promises. So God's power is displayed through the fulfillment of his promises. His manifest glory produces a response of awestruck wonder and praise. God fulfills his promises often in very unexpected ways at unexpected times through unexpected people. And when it happens, there's absolutely no doubt that it was him that was working all along. He does things and he accomplishes things in such a way that it can only be attributed to his glory. And when we recognize that that's what's happening, the only reasonable response is awestruck wonder and praise. So from Luke 1, let's read together beginning in verses 57 in 58 this morning, this is the birth of John the Baptist. This had been foretold uh, prior to the birth of, or to, to the announcement of the coming of Jesus earlier in Luke 1. Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So we see first this morning that the testimony of God's great mercy produces praise among God's people. Now, if you go back again, beginning of chapter 1, we, we started this message series a little bit later in chapter 1 with the announcement of the coming of Jesus. And so just a little bit of context here for uh, what's happening here in the latter half 
of chapter 1. So uh, earlier in this chapter, Gabriel appeared to Zechariah the same way he appeared to Mary. Zechariah was a priest. He was serving in the temple, and um, he was told that he and Elizabeth were going to have a son, even though both of them were in their old age. Verse 14, the angel had promised Zechariah, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So what's happening in verses 57 and 58 is a fulfillment of the promise that's made in verse 14. Now last week we saw where we left off in verse 56 that Mary stayed with Elizabeth and Zechariah for about three months. And we know that when Mary arrived, uh, uh, Mary, Elizabeth was about six, six months pregnant at that time with John. So it's very possible that Mary was, uh, was present there for the birth of John the Baptist, that she was able to celebrate in this moment with them. But we know that they're surrounded by family, they're surrounded by loved ones who have heard about this great mercy that God has poured out on Elizabeth. So again, just some of the context here. Whenever Elizabeth and Zechariah received the news that they were going to have their first child, they were at least 60 or 70 years old. Some have argued that they were maybe as high as their 80s or their 90s. Like, so, so this is not the news of a great-grandchild. This is not even the news of a grandchild. This is the news of their child. Their, Elizabeth was thought to be unable to have children. You know, this was a very serious stigma, social stigma, oftentimes that was attached to women in these cultures. Oftentimes they were seen as cursed because they were unable to have children. Oftentimes they were seen as being under God's punishment or his judgment or his wrath. We know this isn't true because earlier, earlier in chapter one, we're told that Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were upright. They were God-fearing people. They, they were walking in obedience to the Lord. But here Elizabeth has had to endure. She's had to bear this stigma. She's had to, to bear this, this immense suffering for her entire life. Undoubtedly, the two of them had given up decades earlier believing that they would ever have the opportunity to have biological children. And Gabriel shows up and tells Zechariah, that's all about to change. And the promise is being fulfilled. Everyone hears about this mercy that God has shown to her. When we see this word mercy throughout Scripture, it's used in a couple of different senses. You know, there's mercy in the sense of God removing the punishment for our sin. In mercy, God is withholding the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. What we deserve because of our sin is condemnation. We, reserve God, we deserve God's judgment. All of this is what's owed to us as the penalty for our sin, and yet all of that is taken care of on the cross by Jesus. God pours the wrath on Christ that we deserve. That's mercy. God is withholding from us the wrath that we deserve. And yet, Scripture also speaks of God's mercy in the sense of God removing suffering. This had been Elizabeth's lifelong suffering. This had been her difficult experience. It was God showing her the kindness, God showing her the mercy of now being able to have a child. And at the sound of this mercy, her neighbors come rejoicing. This is the only appropriate response to mercy. It's worship and rejoicing. When we share the mercy of the salvation of someone that we've long prayed for, we share the mercy, the kindness that God has shown to someone to alleviate suffering, even holding on to the hope of mercy in eternity to come as we struggle through whatever we're going through right now. Um, earlier this year, our family had a, a pretty incredible experience. We, um, without betraying too much confidence here, we uh, had a family member whose salvation had been prayed for longer than Emily and I have been alive. And uh, it's getting older and, and facing some, some serious health issues. And, and there were, you know, concerns, maybe doubts among many of us. Man, maybe this is never going to happen. 
But we continue to pray, continue to pray, continue to pray as a family. Remember earlier this spring, our Cross Kids team uh, held this prayer event at the church office. And so we were doing that together with our boys. And we went through this station where we wrote specifically the names of people uh, for whose salvation we were praying for. And it was amazing, man. Like, like within just a couple of weeks, we get this phone call from a family member letting us know that this other family member had trusted in Christ. We rejoiced. We rejoiced. And what was the reason for our rejoicing? Mercy. Mercy is always cause for rejoicing. We rejoice in salvation. We rejoice at the alleviation of suffering. We rejoice at knowing that mercy will eventually come even in the midst of our suffering. Whenever we experience the mercy of God or see a brother or sister in Christ experience the mercy of God, the only reasonable response is to rejoice. Let's keep reading together here verses 59 through 64. It says, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and stone and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. So we see second this morning that the gracious wound of God's discipline strengthens obedience and heals unbelief. We need a little bit of context here because, again, we picked up about halfway into chapter 1 with the announcement of the coming of Jesus. And what we learn in chapter 1 is that Gabriel, before he appeared to Mary, had also appeared to Zechariah, and he made a very similar promise. In the way that Gabriel promised Mary she would be with child even though she was a virgin, he made the promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth that Elizabeth would be with child even though she was advanced in age and barren. And, and during that time, Zechariah, even being a priest, serving in the temple of the Lord in ministry, he sees Gabriel, he hears this promise, and he doesn't believe. And the result of this is that the Lord inflicts some discipline upon Zechariah. And he, the angel tells him, you're not going to be able to speak until the birth of your son. So that's what's going on here in chapter 1. Like, Zechariah has been experiencing this for, for now several months. He's not been able to say a word, and it's finally at the arrival of his son uh, that his, his tongue is loosed, and he's once again able to speak. And I, I think this is a really important passage for us to, to sit down on here for just a second, because it, it begs a really important question. Does God punish us? Does he pour out his wrath on us? Does he judge us? Because at times we struggle to believe. I think it's a really important question. It's a question that all of us have undoubtedly grappled with at some point in time. It, it's something that we have, have all most uh, uh, absolutely, I, I know, true in my life, probably true in your life. At least some of us probably wrestle with this right now. I have doubts. I have questions. I have concerns. And you see an example like what happens to Zechariah, and it's easy to think, man, God's angry at me. Like everything that's bad in my life right now is simply because I won't believe, because I've not trusted in his promises. And, and so, so what do we do with all that? Well, uh, let's look at two different examples here, because I think the answer for us this morning is shown both in the example of Zechariah and Mary. So again, they show up on the eighth day to, to uh, circumcise John. This was according to Jewish Mosaic law from Leviticus chapter 12. Circumcision was the covenant sign of the nation of Israel. It's what God had given his people that set them apart as holy and righteous from among the nations. It was a covenant sign showing that this child was going to be raised under uh, adherence to the Jewish Mosaic law, uh, was going to be enveloped into the blessings that the Lord had promised the nation of Israel. Typically, it was the head of the household who did this, so it's Zechariah. And, and, and so uh, what we see is, is all of that from earlier in chapter 1 starting to play out. 
It, it comes time to name the child. And my goodness, guys, what type of person argues with a new mother over what the name of the child is going to be? Every family's got that one relative, right? Been together for eight days and somebody feels like suddenly they've got more authority to speak than they actually have. So Elizabeth, his name will be called John. And Zachariah says, no, 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 his name is John. And it's as soon as he takes a step of obedience, his voice, his tongue's loose and he's able to speak again. So what do we do with all this? Why is it when the angel appears to Mary, she's not punished, but he appears to Zachariah and he is? Because the two of them have very, very similar responses. Well, let's parallel these two together for just a moment. So Luke, who uh, penned this gospel account, very well-educated physician, very well-educated historian, and he does just a masterful job under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, laying out these two parallel stories. And these are the details that we see between Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah and also his appearance to Mary. So, Again, Gabriel appears to Zechariah, appears to Mary. Zechariah was troubled by the sight of the angel. Mary was troubled by the voice of the angel. Gabriel says to Zechariah, do not be afraid. Gabriel says to Mary, do not be afraid. He tells Zechariah, you will have a son even though your wife is barren. He tells Mary, you will have a son even though you are a virgin. So pretty much following the same traje trajectory so far, right? Like th these seem like two very similar experiences. And then both of them give a very similar response but it's also a very different response. And this is where the, the narrative starts to deviate a little bit. Zechariah responds by asking, how shall I know this? If you really dig into that statement and the language that's used here, what Zechariah is asking for is a sign. How shall I know this? And then he just kind of lays out his rationale. He says, we're old. Like, we're advanced in years, and so I, I, don't, I don't know that I can totally get on board with this. So what sign, Gabriel, do you give me that these things are going to come to pass? And it's that response that receives the Lord's discipline. Because Gabriel hears this, he's like, what sign? Brother, I'm literally an angel. <laughs> like, I stand in the presence of God. This is your sign. And, and he, just, he just doesn't believe. He's like, well, what, what else can you do for me? As, as if this isn't enough. And one of my favorite um, social media interactions of all time, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm into sports. That, that's kind of my, that's my release and that, that's my escape. And so I'm on Twitter a lot. I like to find different, fi or follow different social media accounts from different sports teams. And one of my favorite interactions of all time was a couple of years ago. It was the official Twitter account of the Toronto Blue Jays, professional baseball team. And so there was a fan, there were rumors about one of their players getting traded. And so there was a fan who, who tweets at their official, uh, official MLB, like blue check mark Twitter account, and he asked the question, hey, did this guy get traded? And the Blue Jays' official Twitter account replies and says, no, he's just injured, and he's working through that injury day to day. And this fan is apparently dissatisfied with that response. And he replies, and he says, what's your source? And so their, their account replies, literally us, the Blue Jays, we're the source. And, and that's kind of what's going on here. Zechariah's like, says who? Gabriel's like, I, I am the official Twitter account of God. <laughs> like, I, I'm the social media, like, that's my job is to deliver the news. He's like, fine, so we're going to give you a sign, but the sign he received was a rebuke. You're not going to be able to speak. It's going to be a sign that causes you to remember this. Listen, Zechariah should have known better. He had been walking with the Lord his whole life. He knew the word. He knew the prophecies. For goodness sake, he was in the holy place. He should have expected something like this. 
He should have believed, but he doesn't. Here's what's different about Mary's response. Zachariah responds, how shall I know this? I want a sign. What are you going to do for me to help me believe this? Mary responds, how will this be? There's a very subtle difference here, but it's an important difference. How shall I know this? Elizabeth and I are getting pretty old. How will this be because I'm a virgin? See, Zachariah's response was shrouded in doubtful cynicism. I'll believe it when I see it. Mary's response was shrouded in a hopeful optimism. I believe, but help me understand. Again, Mary's young, but she's not ignorant. She's, she's, just, she's just doing the science on this, right? Like, tell me I'm pregnant. I'm a virgin. On board here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm receiving the promise. Just, just explain this to me. And the angel does. So again, there's a, a big difference. It's subtle, but there is a massive difference here. Mary's response is one of humility. It's, I believe, help me understand. Zachariah's response was, I just can't believe this until you show me something else. Two very, very different responses. Church, pay, pay close attention to this because I think this is so important for us today. There is a universe of difference between the person who should believe but won't and the person who wants to believe but can't. There's a big, big difference between the person who should believe but won't and the person who wants to believe but can't. I want us to see two examples of this in Scripture. Um, two passages I'm going to encourage you to turn to here. One is Matthew chapter 13. Um, we're going to read together verses 53 to 58, and then also Mark chapter 9. So Matthew 13, uh, and then Mark chapter 9. You might want to have both of those uh, handy. And we're going to read both of these because the first example for Matthew is an example of a group of people who should have believed but wouldn't. And then the second example that we see in Mark chapter 9 is the example of a father who wanted to believe but couldn't and, and needed the Lord to meet him in that place of desire to believe. And this is the response that we see from Jesus uh, in both of these examples. So again, uh, Matthew chapter 13 is going to be the first one, and then Mark chapter 9 is going to be the second. Matthew 13 verses 53 through 58. So Jesus has been teaching, he's been preaching, he's in his hometown. The people who should have known him more than anyone else. It says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? You know, they're looking at Jesus, they're like, isn't this Joseph's kid? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? Verse 57 says, and they took offense at him. Jesus coming back to his hometown, all these people. Who does this guy think he is? We know who he is. Who does he think he is? And this is the response of Jesus. It says, a prophet is not without honor except his hometown and in his own household. And verse 58 says, the result here is that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Why did Jesus not perform a miracle for them? Why, why did Jesus not do mighty works there? Because they refused to believe. These were people who should have believed, but wouldn't believe. It's not that Jesus, his, not that his power was limited, that he was incapable of performing a miracle, but what we see is that he did not bless them with any kind of miracle because they refused to see him for who he was. Now, here's uh, an opposite example from Mark chapter 9. The context here is, here is a father whose son has been demon-possessed. And, and Jesus, all the testimony about him has been spreading. He's been preaching. He's been performing miracles. He's been healing people. 
And he's got a son who's demon-possessed, and this has had uh, serious ramifications for his son and for his family. So he brings this circumstance to Jesus, and here's the example of someone who wants to believe, but isn't quite there. Verse 21, we'll pick it up there. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him, that this demon possession? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Verse 24, it's one of the most beautiful passages of scripture in the whole Bible. It says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. You see the difference here? There is a world of difference between those of us who should believe but won't and those who want to believe but can't. We see one group receiving judgment and we see the other group receiving mercy. And I, I just fear what happens, so many of us, like we, we grow up in the church, we become over familiar with things. We've heard the stories one too many times. We've sang the songs one too many times. We, we've just seen the whole song and dance. We're not going to be impressed by anything that we see at this point in time. And, and, and Satan just plays this nasty trick in our lives where it's like the closer and closer and closer we get to Jesus, the harder time we have worshiping him for who he is because we get over familiar. We stop beholding him. And because we stop beholding, we stop believing. We have this, this cynicism and we have this doubt that starts to permeate our thoughts and our minds. And those of us who have seen him time and time again prove himself faithful in our lives, we still come to these moments where it's like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. We come to the edge of the cliff of trust. And, and it's like, even though he's proven himself a thousand times, we still won't take the step of faith trusting that he's going to catch us on the other side. There's such a big difference. Some of us were in the place, man, we should believe, but we just won't. And, and because of this, we see throughout Scripture is, is that, yes, the Lord in his love and in his grace, he will discipline us in those moments. That there's moments that we might find ourselves in the spiritual doghouse because we've just refused to take God at his word. But here's the good news for us this morning. The Lord's discipline on his children is not forever. We see this evidence in the life of Zechariah. So again, that there's the moment of family drama there, like what's the name going to be? And, 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 you know, it, this was very common to name children after family members. So you probably got some family members who were there thinking, hey, maybe he's going to name the kid after me. And then out of nowhere, John, that ain't nobody's name. Like, where, where are you getting that from? And then, you know, Elizabeth, she's like, nope, chiming in. That's going to be his name. And then Zechariah, no, 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 his name will be John. And there's such an important lesson to be learned from Zechariah. Because whenever we enter into moments of suffering, whenever we come under the Lord's gracious discipline, you and I can do one of two things. We can decide be to become bitter, or we can decide to become better. And we see the moment Zechariah's mouth is open, he has not been harboring bitterness against the Lord. He explodes into a song of praise. He endures the season of the Lord's discipline. And it increases the intensity of his worship. It increases the intimacy of this relationship. It fuels his obedience. It, it bolsters his previously unbelief into now firm faith and belief and the reminder that God is who he said that he is. We're, we're going to come back to this in a few moments, church, but we have to recognize when we find ourselves under the gracious hand of the Lord's discipline, he only wounds so he can heal. 
Lord willing, here in a few weeks, uh, we're going to spend the second Sunday in January in Hosea chapter 6. Such a powerful passage, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And the prophet cries out to the people, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, why? That he may heal us. He has broken us down that he may bind us up. Well, which place do you find yourself in today? Are we those who should be able to take God at his word but simply won't? We may need to enter into some repentance. But if you are the person that desperately wants to believe but simply can't, what you're going to find is mercy. Let's be honest about where we are this morning. Again, we're going to reflect on that again shortly. But let's wrap up uh, th this passage here, uh, verses 65 through 66. So here's the response of, of those who are gathered together. We see uh, that, uh, again, that this has been um, kind of a crazy scene here. You know, there, there's an argue over what he's going to be named, and, and Zechariah has not been able to speak for a long period of time, and now he is able to speak again. And, and so it's all, it's all starting to come in together. And so here's the response of everyone uh, as all these things uh, begin to unfold. Again, uh, from chapter 1, let's read together verses 65 and 66. It says, And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? They see this miracle that's been performed. And they've seen suddenly Zechariah is singing praises when for nine months he's not been able to say a word. And, and this atmosphere of fear and reverence falls on. What then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? So we see third this morning that the supernatural display of God's power creates an atmosphere of reverence and awe. Ask the question, how can we know that God is moving among his people? Because sometimes I think we call things God's movement when it's, if we're being honest, probably isn't actually God's movement. Now, I'll just be fully transparent with you this morning. I was a, I was a worship leader for several years, and this is true way more often than I wish it was. You know, we'll finish singing a series of songs and, and it's, it's hitting everybody in all the fields and then, you know, we'll leave that place. It's like, man, I could really feel God moving today. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure that was just a G to a C chord and really good lighting. <laughs> like, how do we know that the Lord is really moving? Like, it's, it's not that he can't move like that, but how do we know when we read the word of God that God is really moving? There's an overwhelming atmosphere of the fear of the Lord. There is this awful reverence, that this, this holy reverence for the power and the presence of God. And that's what happens here towards the end of chapter 1. Yes, there was celebrating. Yes, there was joy. Yes, there was rejoicing over God's mercy. But what spread like wildfire was reverence and awe. That's how we can know that God is moving among his people. And listen, church, the only way that we will continue to walk in the fear of the Lord is when we are continually beholding who he is. They saw the promises of the word unfold in such a supernatural way that it could only be attributed to God's power and his glory. Man, I think we have to be honest and examine ourselves and ask ourselves, like, how much in our lives, how much in our church can truly only be attributed to the power of God? How many things are happening in our lives, how many things are happening in our church that we could look at and say, that's impossible without the movement of the Holy Spirit? And when we recognize this, this, this it's, it's almost eerie when it happens. Again, good example of this comes from Mark chapter 4. Jesus is out on the, the stormy sea with his disciples, and, and they think that they're going to die in the storm. And Jesus is asleep in the boat, and so they wake him up. And the man stands up and talks to the weather, and it listens. 
And what is the response of the disciples in that moment? Does it, does it hit them in all the feels like, oh man, I can really feel God moving now. What's it say happened? No, it says they were terrified. They were filled with fear. They're looking at Jesus going, who is this that the wind listens to him? That even the seas will obey him. When God truly moves in power, the evidence that he's moving is an atmosphere of fear and reverence among his people. We only see this, we're only going to see his movement when we continually behold him, when we're reminded of his promises, when we see them coming to pass and as we rejoice in these things. So, so what, do we, what do we do with all this this morning? With, with this picture of this God who, who he moves in power, who says he's going to fulfill his promises. Well, just in light of what we've seen uh, this morning in these verses, I want to give us three challenges as we uh, close things out this morning. The first challenge for all of us individually and collectively as a body is, man, let's be people who rejoice in his mercy. This was a communal rejoicing at the mercy of God on the life of Elizabeth. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's so easy for me sometimes, especially in prayer, to so quickly run to the Lord with my laundry list of things that I need that I forget to rejoice in what he's already done. That this is an individual rejoicing. Man, we, we continually rejoice in the salvation that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. We can rejoice when God shows mercy to a brother or a sister who's, who's maybe endured a life of suffering. And even more than this, if we're the type of person that, man, maybe you're, you're in the middle of the suffering right now. We can rejoice in the promise of the mercy that's to come. Listen, if you are that person this morning, you are trying to believe with all that you are the promises of God, but you're struggling to. You want to believe but you can't. I just want to encourage you with this this morning. You're in the middle of suffering. If you can trust Jesus with your sin, you can trust him with your suffering. If he's good enough to pay the price for your sin, he's going to be good enough to see all of your suffering redeemed in the end. If you can trust him with your sin, you can trust him with your suffering, even in the middle of the mess right now. You may not feel it. You may not see it. You can trust he's going to keep his promises. You can trust you're going to see him face to face, and you can trust that one day you will experience the fullness of his mercy. Your suffering will be no more, just as the way your sin has become no more because of the finished work of Jesus. So continually, individually, collectively, we rejoice in the mercy of God. Second, that this is a mark of maturity, I think, for followers of Jesus Christ, is that we learn to be people who accept the Lord's discipline. Listen, we fundamentally know that this is true. Now, I want to read this passage here from Proverbs um, chapter 3. It reminds us, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. You know, when a parent refuses to, to demonstrate loving, gracious, fair, consistent discipline in the life of a children, we don't call them a loving parent. We call them a negligent parent. And our God is, is not a negligent father. Again, he's, he's not just trying to pour out wrath because we've got seasons of questions. We've got seasons of doubt. He absolutely wants to bring us to objectivity. He wants to bring us to the place of, of faith. But we have to recognize, even when we find ourselves, like when we have maybe just one too many times refused to believe God when he's told us, believe me, we may find ourselves in the doghouse of discipline. 
At times, this is going to happen. Man, God is going to feel distant, and he's going to feel quiet, and reading the word is going to be hard, and prayer is going to be hard. And listen, there's a lot of reasons for this. Sometimes it's unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, again, that we've just refused to be obedient to something the Lord's put in front of us. It, it could be that, again, we, we just simply have, have started to trust in ourselves and refused to trust in him. But again, let, let's, let's make sure we, we iron out the nuance here. Big difference between the person who should believe but won't and the person who wants to believe but can't. If we're in the first group, those of us who should believe but just simply refuse to believe, what we probably need today is repentance. We need to come to the Lord and acknowledge, Father, I, I'm sorry that I have not trusted you. You have proven yourself faithful, not just in saving me, but in sustaining me time and time and time again. You have shown yourself to be good and precious and true. And in my sin, I have refused to see this and believe it. That's what many of us need today. If, if we are the place that we, we should believe but won't, what we need is mercy. But if you're in the place today, what we need is repentance. But if you're in the place today of wanting to believe but can't, what you're going to find is mercy. There's a difference. And we see God's mercy poured out on Mary. He see, we see his mercy poured out on Elizabeth. We see his mercy poured out on this father of a son who's demon-possessed. If that's you today, I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. The Lord will meet you in his mercy. We must be people who learn to accept his discipline, trusting that it's making us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And third, we do this as we walk in awestruck reverent fear. Walk in the fear of the Lord. You know, John, you, you go on to study his life, his, his name means very simply, the Lord has given grace. And he went on to preach this message of repentance. John's message is the same message that Jesus picked up. It's the same message you and I have been called to proclaim. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's repentance is a grace. God's repentance is kindness. We forget this sometimes. Like God has given us this work of repentance, not because not he's just angry at us. No, it's because he desires for us to be in deeper intimacy and fellowship with him. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Repentance is extremely uncomfortable, right? Like having to come face to face with the ugliness of our sin and confess it honestly for what it is, and then to take that to the feet of Jesus, it's hard, difficult work when we're shedding off the old self, and yet we're told time and time again in Scripture that it's God's grace and his kindness that leads us there. That was John's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as Jesus came onto the scene, the announcement was, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, th this Sunday morning, today, this is going to be my last Sunday morning with you for this year. I just shared a little bit ago, our family's traveling, and I'll be with you on Christmas Eve. It's my last Sunday morning. And, and so I wanted to leave us with this this morning as we, we kind of start to put a button on, on 2021 as we think ahead to another year to come. You know, I, I teach the Bible. Like, it's, it's very important to me that we, we teach the Bible in a way that's understandable, that's accessible. We, we don't just want to teach it so that we come in here like, hey, I know what it says and I know what it means. We also want to know, hey, what do I do with this? And so, so it, uh, every single week that we're here, we gather together. Those of you who've been with us for a while, you know, we, we try to give you some practical handles on this. So this morning, we're looking at three. Hey, let's, let's be people who rejoice in mercy and, and accept his discipline and, and walk in awestruck, reverent fear. But listen, if, if you only take away one of these this morning, I want you to take away the third. It's to be people who walk in awestruck, reverent fear of the Lord. You know, like John the Baptist, Charles Spurgeon once said, you don't need a new sermon when the old one 
is behold the Lamb of God. And church, if there's just one thing I could give you as we start to wrap up 2021, one simple application that I hope we will, every single one of us, lay claim to today, it's this. Behold your God. Because the moment we stop beholding is the moment we stop believing. We begin to drift into doubt, and we begin to drift into uncertainty when we forget who he is. Would you just think about this with me for a second? One day, man, one day we're going to see him face to face. And the second we do, we are going to wonder what on earth we were so worried about. Behold your God. I want us to be people who see him in his glory and see him in his strength and who see him at his power so that we can take him at his word. So that we can trust that he is exactly who he said he is and he will do exactly what he has said he will do. This is Proverbs 19. The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. Do you want to rest satisfied next year? Do you want to rest content in the Lord? Do you want to rest content in Christ? Do you want to be satisfied in him? It begins with the fear of the Lord. Whoever has it rests satisfied and he will not be visited by harm. We we get to hold out with this hope. We get to lay claim to this promise and believe in this promise. This is such good news for us. Such good news for us. But be inspired by by the story of a four-year-old boy this morning. One day, you and I are going to get our permanent Christmas. Gosh, we're going to be with him. We are going to be with him. This gift that we have dreamed about and desired that we've already received yet don't fully see or understand, we're going to be with him. And so if you're coming to him this morning in the honesty and transparency of struggling to believe but wanting to believe, you will find his mercy. That's what he promises you this morning. And this is cause for rejoicing. And as we see this God fulfill his promises, as we see new brothers and sisters come into the fold and we rejoice in their salvation and we see his mercy poured out on those who are suffering and as we cling to the hope of his mercy in the midst of our suffering, let's walk in awe and reverence of who he is. If you can trust him with your sin, you can trust him with your suffering. Let's never stop beholding who our God is. We just bow your head with me this morning as we, we close our time together. We come to the table, and, and this is one of the primary places for beholding, for remembering who he is, for seeing visibly what he's done for us. That's what we see at the table. It's the visible reminder of what Jesus has done for us. His body was broken just the way we'll break this bread. His blood was shed just the same way we'll pour out these cups. He has covered our sins. Behold your God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have you stopped beholding? As we prepare to come to the table this morning, let's do some introspection here together. Which group are you in today? Are you the type of person, be honest with yourself, who should believe but won't? Or are you the type of person who wants to believe but can't? For those of us in the first group, we need to enter into some repentance. We need to acknowledge to the Lord, I should be able to trust you by now. 
I know you. I know your word. I have seen you fulfill your promises. You have not just saved me. You have sustained me. And in my sin, I have still refused to believe. Again, for others this morning, it's the vulnerability of, Lord, I desperately want to believe, but I can't. Listen, you're going to find his mercy. He's going to meet you where you are, and you're going to find him in his mercy. As we come to the table, let's just examine our hearts, all of us. Just ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the darkness of our hearts, to shine the light of the gospel on our sin. Let's just be honest. Let's ask the Lord to reveal words, thoughts, actions, behaviors, habits, anything within us that is not of Christ. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that now. And as he does, let's confess it and lay it at the feet of Jesus. We just have a moment to do that together here. As we confess, let's ask the Lord for a heart of genuine repentance, that we would turn from our sins, that we, with a renewed nature, renewed hearts, renewed minds, that we would be people who love what he loves and that we would hate what he hates. Let's ask him by his grace to give us that this morning. So, Father, fuel us today with faith. Help us to stand on the legacy of fulfilled promises. Help us to look around and see how faithful you've been to us and never forget your goodness towards us. To keep our eyes on Jesus, to set our eyes on the day when we will see the fullness of our mercy face to face. Lord, we long for this day. And until then, help us to go proclaiming this message you've given us. So as we come to the table this morning, Lord, to proclaim your son's death. In our eating and our drinking and in our confessing and our repenting and our singing and our praying, our rejoicing and our weeping, would it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you? We lay it before you as a sacrifice today. Would you receive glory in all things? We ask all things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.